Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, Mary's in the hut, and you, you are welcome at this week's Sit Rep Roundtable on a warm June afternoon in London town. Now, in the next 60 minutes, caring for service men and women in need, why can't MOD get it right? More body bags in Iraq and Afghanistan, why the figures don't impress the British media. Why the top story about Iran is in Hebrew, why the Americans are hanging on by fingertips in Central Asia and why NATO is keeping its fingers crossed for them, and why defence intelligence is dusting off its maps of the North Caucasus, and why we should know what's going on in Corfu this weekend. Now, stay with us to the end, bitter end of the programme, because at five we'll be going straight to Wimbledon for the Andy Murray match. Now, we start at Westminster, because on Wednesday... MPs forced the government into a debate whether the long-promised Iraq inquiry, why we went, what happened when we got there, why we stayed, whether the Iraq inquiry should be all in public, whether witnesses should be made to attend, and whether they'd give evidence on oath. On the line, the BBC's Defence and Security correspondent, Rob Watson. Rob, I suppose the first thing is, what's the biggest unanswered question the inquiry has to ask? We don't seem to have Rob Watson. Right, with me in the studio, because we'll go to somebody else now, with me in the studio from City University, Dr Rosemary Hollis, the Chief Foreign Correspondent, Global Radio News, and former Middle East Correspondent of the Times, Christopher Walker, and the sometime Kremlin Foreign Policy Advisor and now Editor-in-Chief of the International Affairs website, Stirring Trouble Internationally, Alexander Nakrasov. Alexander, that's about the biggest build-up we've given anybody ever. Uh, Christopher Walker, uh, let's try that one with you. We're still waiting for Rob Watson, the BBC's uh, security correspondent, to come up. But what do you reckon is the biggest unanswered question the inquiry has to ask? Who was responsible for sending us to such an ill-judged war? Right. And, uh, I think the biggest Alexander? question is how come the intelligence services reports were uh, changed by the government? Doctored? Doctored, yes. Rosemary is the Middle East specialist among us. What do you think? Is, is there one question that's still unanswered in your mind? Exactly when George Bush and Tony Blair were talking about the details of the deployment. And now give us the dates that you think. Well, um, I think that uh, he gave... Blair gave Bush the impression in the spring of 2002 that uh, it was a question of squaring it with the British people, with the British Parliament, uh, Mm. with the top brass in the forces, but that obviously Britain was going to be side by side with the Americans. And there was um, an issue of legality that would have to be sorted and therefore it would be wonderful if Bush would uh, go internationally and try the diplomatic route. But uh, I suspect with this inquiry, we're still not going to have the, the fatal day on which X was done or Y was decided. Right. Uh, I hope listening to BBC's Defence and Security correspondent Rob Watson. Um, Rob, I was wondering what the biggest unanswered question in your mind uh, that the inquiry has yet to ask. Well... I'm not so sure that there are that many unanswered questions. I mean, certainly not for those of us living in the United States, because, of course, there's a way in which the United States Congress, uh, committees of the Senate and committees of the House, are just a bit more stuck in than than we've been in Britain. It's a a different system. So I I guess in my mind there aren't so many. I, I guess if you were to ask me what do you think the British people want, and the opinion polls would suggest that they want to know how we got into this mess. Yeah. Um... Is, do you reckon um, when you're going around the, um, the, the military, the um, three services, is there a question or are there questions that the military, military want asked? 
Very much so. I, I think in broad terms, I, I guess one thinks about what Lord Guthrie said, the former chief of the defence staff. He said, look, we need as, as full and as open, as complete inquiry so as, if you like, the British arm, armed forces can move on from all of the controversy surrounding the, the war in Iraq. So I, I guess the point that he would make is that he wants absolutely everything in there. I guess more specifically, some of the, the military leaders that I've spoken to want to make sure that it's out there, issues about equipment, that there weren't perhaps as many troops that everyone would have liked and that perhaps there was just nothing like as much done on planning as possible. I should say that not everybody that I've spoken to in the military is, is so excited about a review. You can imagine I, I bumped into one senior general who said he could see the appearance of general hindsight a lot at this inquiry. Uh, well, in fact, I was, I was talking perhaps not to the same field marshal, but he said, you know, start to think about it the other way around. Um, I mean, what questions don't the military want to have to answer? Well, you know, something that I was doing a piece for the BBC about Britain's record in southern Iraq uh, a couple of months back to mark the, the, the big pullouts. And, you know, some of the things that uh, middle-ranking officers said to me is we would, we would surely like an inquiry to look into why the real top brass at the military didn't stand up to the politicians more at the time by challenging them and saying, are you sure you really know why you want this number of British troops going there? Do you know what they're really for? So I suspect that there'll be some in the higher ranks. The military will be rather uncomfortable if the inquiry does touch on, if you like, those sort of fundamental existential questions. When I look at the, um, the inquiry team, no radicals on it, are there? It's quite a safe team for any government. Pretty much. But... When you think about this, could you really imagine that the team would would look anything you know would look particularly different? I'm not so sure that that's necessarily an impediment to the inquiry. I mean, it's not just the team itself. They'll have a they'll have a lot of senior advisors. They'll have people from the military. Just to go back a second though to to your point about would there be anything that the military might be uncomfortable about? I mean, if this inquiry is to get into the actual conduct of the war as well as how we got into it in the first place, then clearly there are an awful lot of questions about whether that the British military and the politicians sort of gave up on the mission and started to look for a, a, an exit strategy rather than to look at how to win, which is clearly something that the Americans have, have held on to right until the end. Um, Tuesday at the Royal United Services Institute, the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Richard Dannett, he was saying that Britain failed, I mean, he used that word failed in Iraq, because we didn't deploy enough manpower. Now, I can see the balance of argument there, but he is, you know, you've got the CGS actually talking about failure. Uh, that's an uncomfortable um, ex expression for the military. It, it is uncomfortable, but, but I can tell you, Christopher, I, I spoke to a lot of uh, officers who've been involved in the campaign, and I think they'll be rather pleased because a lot of them do actually think that in terms of the conduct, it, it was a failure and that we didn't think all the time about how can we win. It was all this question of how do we get out. So I think some officers are actually going to be rather pleased. I should say that some others might say it's a bit brutal in the sense that no matter how Britain conducted the war and no matter how much in the end there was a lot of help from the Americans and the Iraqis, the bottom line is they would argue that, that Basra is, is better than when, we, than when we first got there. I heard, um, I heard one uh, officer saying well, one of the problems is with, is with the senior, some of the senior people you know, at brigade level, they saw it as an opportunity for their political or their promotion um, uh, for the future rather than just a simple war. I thought all wars are like that and 
all senior officers are like that. That's, that's how they get to be very senior officers, isn't it true? <laughs> I think I think you're absolutely right. Look, the idea that uh, you know the idea that senior officers don't. Uh, don't have some feeling for how you deal with politicians and the kind of things that politicians maybe do or don't want to hear, uh, you know, is, is there in absolutely every single war. But I think it's at the maybe at the kind of major colonel level that there's a lot of irritation at some of their senior officers who they feel really just didn't stand up to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown enough and say, look, if you really want us to, to, to win in Iraq, you should send more troops. And I think, for example, if one takes one pivotal moment, and that is at, at the very moment when the United States was beginning the surge, these officers would say, what were we doing? We were cutting our numbers. And what does that really look like? And what does that say about the British military and the British politicians at the time? Right. Bob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Um, still with me, um, Christopher Walker, Global Radio News, Dr. Rosemary Hollis uh, from City University, and uh, Alexander Nekrasov. Alexandra, the lesson that's going to come out of this inquiry is really, isn't it, don't do it if you can't do it. In other words, don't go to war on the sort of circumstances that we went this time. Well, I suppose that probably be... That Was that too smarter? That would, I mean, probably will be that sort of conclusion. I don't expect anything to come of this inquiry because wars are usually... The reasons are uncovered like 30 years later, usually, when you look back. Too many people are alive still who don't want, want things to be known. But I think that um, Rob Watson, when he was talking about, you know, the victory and defeat in Iraq, there was no uh, order to the troops to win anything. That's, the, that, that's what many people make a mistake. The British troops went in to pacify, you know, terrorists and groups of... Um, gangsters basically there was no plan to win anything so i am absolutely appalled when people say well the british didn't do well why didn't they do well i don't understand the mission was never clear there was no mission there was nothing for example you go from that tree to that tree and you have to be that that tree by that time there was nothing like but that. there was debate about that at the time what is the end game there was none. That's the point. You see, you well, can't win in a war, which is a phony war. I'm also frightened by the statistics I read of the, of the inquiry, because don't forget the bloody Sunday inquiry, as somebody said, it's taken eight years. I must and explain, it was about that's one not, for, the older, for, for the younger listeners, that's not an expletive from, uh, um, from, from Walker. The bloody Sunday occurred on January the 30th. 31st, 1972. And, the, uh, and it, uh, its events took place basically on one day. Hmm. And it's taken eight years. And the inquiry still... But it was political. Reported. But it was political. Well, this Come is on, going yeah. to end up as political. This was it, It's entirely by... political as to whether Tony Blair gives his evidence in public or in private. I mean, and it, and yeah. that has been handed... I think there's been a U-turn of such dramatic nature over the past week. It was going to be a private inquiry apportioning no blame. It is now going to be mostly in public, and it's going to apportion blame. It's a complete... I think, you know, for once, William Hague, the Tory foreign minister, made an amusing remark when he said uh, the U-turn was rather like watching a learner driver on the motorway facing the wrong way, making a six-point turn. It's, it's happened every day, and we still don't but know today one... whether there's going to be anybody questioned under oath. But there's one other question... Oh that will be addressed, but the answer has huge implications, the legality of the war. Because if you remember... The unanswered question, the Attorney-General's 
and the mm. fact that we understood at the time that it was the chief of the armed forces who wanted to know. We can't go unless you tell us it's legal because we can't have the members of the forces prosecuted after this. Now, you can't have an inquiry that then says it wasn't legal, can you? Without huge implications. No, and that's presumably why they're trying to play around with using the oath and saying, I mean, it's basically been a, a, a thing saying it's not like scouts honour. We're going to ask the witnesses to promise they're telling the truth, but they won't have to swear on the Bible or the whatever you know, holy book they believe in. Um, and that's going to make the whole thing... I think we're in for cock-up after cock-up on this one. Oh, that's... Well, at least it makes good copy. Um, <laughs> listen, I want to come to something which I think makes rather sad copy. Um, we're coming up to the deadline. Of, I think it's Tuesday for most of the 133,000 American troops to withdraw from Iraqi cities to bases. Uh, to help them on the way, the bombers are about their business. I mean, we had yesterday uh, um, Alexander Watt, it was about 60, 60 oh, killed in Sada 60, City, yes, and two, 130, 130 140 yes. uh, wounded. We've had just this week seven bombings. Today there was another one. Today. Yeah. And seven, I mean, 70 people died in a truck bombing at Cook. And you know, that is what I argued on my website. I was saying the surge did not work. Because the point is the Americans think that their surge was wonderful, you know? They so pacified everybody. It didn't. Everybody went underground. It was a deal. It, no, they went underground. They waited. And this, you know, I for think the, that's extremely unfair. I think Petraeus was never in any doubt that he could do so much with a surge, but it would require the political politics to fall into place but they say, and the opportunity to be used by the politicians that's what's missing but dick cheney and, and bush were saying all the time oh it worked you didn't think it will work it will it okay. worked we mm. sort of wiped them out and so on now they're back now okay they're back. tell me why there are at the moment um so many attacks rosie well i think one is that as predicted, if you give a deadline when you're going to pull out or you're going to pull mm. back, then all the guys that oppose your presence have to claim victory. So they have to get active in order to say, we did it. And to remind everybody that uh, it was the pressure that got them to withdraw. And They're not the withdrawing very far, there. I mean, it's not as if they're off to Nebraska or anywhere like that. I mean, they're just... just but they're not coming back. Important. They've said that nothing's going to stop them. Uh, they've offered to but stay got these in big some bases. cities, and they've been turned down. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that... Um, but the other thing I was going to say is yeah, to discredit on, the Iraqi mm. government, uh, who will then be seen not to be able to cope without the American help. No. So what happens then? I'm afraid, going back to what you was being said earlier, that uh, the surge was only capable ever of buying time. It wasn't a solution. And Iraq could therefore descend back into its unstable mm. state, the one that we weren't sure would survive before the surge. I mean, the three it's parts, it's you know, the Shia, Shiites, Sunnis and Kurds. Is this a viable nation? They've already totally failed to come to an agreement on on the oil. The Kurds, you know, have, have not been allowed to go ahead and dig their oil uh, in, in their own way. I think what Rosie says is exactly right, and that it, it's proved how fatal it is when you give a deadline. I mean, there can't be any member of Al-Qaeda in Iraq or anybody else who's not got his calendar marked 
June the 30th, which is probably quite a different date in their calendar. Hang on and a minute. And they want to prove victory. But they no... want to see them running out of there with bombs going off everywhere and, and them able to say, we drove them out. Well, let's remember, Obama mm. won the election on the basis that he was going to end the American presence in yeah. Iraq and that any government of Iraq cannot be legitimate if it is seen to preside only at the behest but of the But in Americans. Iraq, they don't know about it. That's the point, you see, because the, uh, the, the, the rebels, they are uh, working uh, for the local population. Nobody knows what Obama promised in Iraq. Nobody cares. You see, that's the mm. point. And the, I, I think that's exactly the point. They that want seems to be, that seem, no, that seems to be a bit, bit difficult well, to swallow, the, actually. Well, the because, Iraqis you know, don't the, want it. Yeah, Iraqis are pretty smart people. They're very smart people. And but they, the listen, point is they listen to services, they listen, they read, uh, the word spreads, mm. there are statements, and they just don't sort of sit but there do you, and say, do you oh, I think there's, believe there's, there's one thing we haven't met, uh, mentioned, and that is the fact that one reason the Americans did sue so well, as well as the surge was, they were virtually bribing the Sunni militia to come on their side. They were bribing these them. Well, not all of them, they but were paying quite a few them. of them. And now the Iraqi government are not paying them. They were promised sort of jobs for life, a couple of guns, and now they're getting nothing, and they are very competent Isn't there is something, something which, I mean, for the three of you saying, you know, this, this didn't work or it only worked because of bribery or whatever, and then we have uh, General Dannett saying, well, we didn't get it right, we failed, you know, we mm. Brits, we failed in Iraq. We have uh, General McChrystal saying, well, we've got to change our tactics because we're not getting it right in Afghanistan. And then somebody else saying, well, unless the Pakistanis get it right, we can't hack Afghanistan. Can somebody tell me why we're so bad at wars? Well, that's the part of the world. We're quite good at wars in Europe. Well, I can tell you. I'll give you a question. I can Which answer. war did we win in Europe? I can the answer Second World question. War. Not one, one, of my, one of my ancestors... <laughs> The famous Kazimbek, Mirza Kazimbek, the, descend, uh, the descendant of Prophet Muhammad, wrote a book and said, look... One of your ancestors? Yes, yes, Prophet. I, I'm named I've Alexander... I've not heard this. Well, I can tell you this. And Mirza I thought you were related to Tolstoy. Mirza, yes, it is also true. So and he the, was related to No, no let me finish, because I'm answering well. your question. Mirza Kazimbek wrote a book in the 18th century. He was advisor to the Russian Tsar on the Middle East and Central Asia. And he said, look, the problem with you guys, you do not understand us. You know, you do not understand Middle East and Asia. You treat them as if they are the same people. The mm -hmm. Americans went into Iraq without any knowledge of Iraq. So history. did the Russians just Let me before finish. that. Let me finish. <laughs> Was that Let when me... you were advising the Kremlin? <laughs> well, you'd better stop interrupting me. I'm answering Christopher's question. And the question, the answer is this. You get whacked. You really, really need to understand these people to deal with them. You can't just, just like the Americans, they thought, we'll run a PR war and we'll win it. You can run the PR war forever, you'll never win it. And as regards, again, saying about the British forces uh, not achieving victory, they were not supposed to achieve it. And that's why I find it remarkable that British generals are coming out and saying, we didn't achieve our aims. What were the aims? Tell me. They well, don't know. Now this is sounding like the communist critique. Communist? Communist critique of U.S policy in Vietnam and in Latin America. They didn't have to win, they just had to pretend. They just had to That's prevent communism did. from winning. You remember Vietnam, how they ran from it. I mean, it was, it, it was mm. embarrassing. I spoke to some of the Vietnamese commanders, Couple and they said to me, they left all equipment behind. The they ran mm. off, they left every, all the military. They said, if we should have, would have done a film 
and showed it around the world, they were cowards. No, but they listen, ran off. If you can't win, spoil it mm. for the other guys. Now that's where we're at with Iraq now. As we said, mm. I, 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 I'm defending my, the British Army. It's unbelievable. Actually, where, where I come from, where I come from in, in Cooper Five, there's an expression. Jim, uh, uh, it says, if you if you if you can't do it. Wear a big bonnet, <laughs> and this is what we seem to have uh, been doing. Listen, there's some, there's far more puzzling side of this. Um, going back over those figures, uh, Chris, with all the uh, the dead this week, with last night yet another soldier story that's happening in Afghanistan all yeah. the time. How come not many dead? Um, um, is that all that can be said? Because we're not reporting it, we're not hearing. The war reported, is that because we're out of it or because there are no television cameras Are you there? talking about both wars? Both wars? Yeah. Well, Iraq, we're out of it. I mean, I think we've moved to the stage. There was a brilliant TV series on Basra, three-hour-long plays last week, and that was probably the best thing we've seen on reporting not only the effects inside Basra, but what happened to the soldier boys when they got home. And, and, uh, and they're playing now with the mercenary firms. But I think Iraq, it's understandable. We're not there any longer, so it's somebody else's war. Bye-bye. But, but Afghanistan, you know. it's to do this two elements, in my view, from what I hear from my journalistic friends, and what they write is that the coverage is being very, very restricted. They're just made virtually to do the old, uh, if they're embedded, you know, the PR, they're told to go where they want. They're fed up. It's the usual old clash that you had in Northern Ireland. That, that in fact, I think you've had in every war since journalists have been made to wear uniform, either because it's mm. too dangerous to do anything else or because that's the way the Pentagon wants them to, to fight. It really started in the uh, Iraq uh, war where, you know, you couldn't, the so-called independents, the freelancers, they, largely like Terry Lloyd of ITN, got killed. Yeah. Uh, and the ones who fought with the army, although some of them, of course, did in a very dangerous operation. But, the, you know, who basically, why not just send the guy from the MOD, you know, and let him send his photos back and his, his story. Uh, and the local journalists who report very, very well and on, bravely. on Bravely on their own chaps, and which is probably still read very intensely yeah. at home. It's interesting about, also about statistics, you know, we're coming out about how many killed um, um, 35 uh, in American strikes in uh, in South Waziristan, for example. Mm. With a drone. With, with, with drones, more than three, about 350 people yeah. killed so far um, during those strikes. Very hard to get an accurate figure uh, ever. And I was looking, we, we've both been looking, I know some of the figures for the contacts yes. in Helmand during the past 12 months. And, and although they varied, um, they do tell us quite a lot, don't well, they? Well, they do. I think perhaps if you take the, the first one on the list, May 2008, 60. The last Contacts one, with, yeah. Uh, contacts with. And the last one, these are official figures, there's no dispute about these. Uh, the last one, April 2009, 150. So, I mean, whatever's happening, something seems to be going I mean, March, in it a was curious even March, direction. Yeah. March was 250. It's not all weather, is it? Or is it, it's got something to do with winter? Has it's it got also to do with, with numbers, I think. The fact the Americans 
have now gone in there. I mean, there was some spectacular good war reporting in the British press today because the, the Brits have launched their British exercise, uh, aerial exercise, using 100 helicopters since 2001 because they've been freed up by the arrival of the extra US troops in mm. parts of South Afghanistan to get on with the business of trying not by the way the accounts were written this morning of succeeding in taking uh, ground you know, out and not losing But do you really need statistics to understand the war? For example, let me give no, you an you example. No, but you need statistics to question no, no, no. what is going no, on. No, no, but let me give you an example. An example. The French commanders let me finish. The French commanders were fighting the Taliban, top elite commanders, for four hours, and they lost ten men. When right? was this? No, that was uh, several months ago. But right. the point I'm making is this. That means the Taliban are highly trained, armed well, professionals, right? You don't, commanders are trained to fight in specific areas. But that's not denied by... No, 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 what I'm saying to you, these small things tell you a lot. First of all, it tells you the Taliban have access to arms, always. They regroup quickly. They are funded very well. And I'm guessing it comes, the money comes from certain countries in the Middle East in a big, big numbers, right? Yeah. They, they are very determined to fight, which I always say that you, it's very difficult to fight with a population that is defending its homeland. You're fighting as a foreign invader. Mm. Whatever mm. you say, democracy, you'll give this and that, doesn't work. Mm. You have to get out first. The Iraqis... That's why the Americans found it so tough. They never accepted aggressors on their land. That's a much better theory than the one you had before, which is that they don't know the local people. Well, Just that, being that, foreign uh, is the problem. Mm. No, because there are differences. Don't you think, Rosie, uh, also we're making too many, because not us around this table, but always Afghanistan and Iraq seem to be sort of slotting now into a convenient, similar hole. Similar, whereas in fact they are quite different. Don't you think it's and a, the it, reasons? It, you know, going back, sorry, to the beginning of both involvements on our behalf are, are for different reasons. Well, we were in an era when the neocons in America and New Labour in the UK were basically saying the era is globalization. The lowest common denominators are what work, be it the market and economics or be it democracy. And everybody's a natural democrat and a natural capitalist. And all we have to do is liberate them. And they weren't interested in history, including our own history. Now, I think that is also coming back to visit the UK, somewhat in Iraq, but much more so in Pakistan. And I think it's a significant development that the... Radio 4 Today program has John Humphreys reporting from Pakistan. <laughs> it is domestic news, yeah. the Pakistan facet of the Afghan mm. war. Mm. No, he went, he went to Basra when challenged. Okay, you're reporting on how well or badly mm. the Brits are doing in Iraq. You go and see for yourself. And he reported from Basra, and it was good reporting, and it made a huge difference to the sense of ownership of this war. I think it's significant that he decided he'd better be reporting from Pakistan. But Pakistan. how does it make big him know things on the ground? No, 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 no. It's a big domestic audience in the no, UK. No, 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 I'm just saying, what, how does he know the subtleties? For example, when an American drone kills civilians, every relative of each dead man or, or woman or child will kill 
an American until he lives. That is the difference between those a uh, Asia and Middle East and Europe. I That's what they to, need. I think we got two two. No, 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 no. What I was saying, though, those specific. No, but it'll be felt in those. Birmingham as well. It'll be felt in Burnley as well. Yes. It'll be felt oh. in Leicester as well. That's what I'm saying to you. That's the point. These people move. They have difficult, di different attitudes. Talking That's of moving, talking mm. of moving. I want to move on. Um, the streets of Tehran. Um, I've been thinking that one of the political casualties, to some extent, political cas casualty of what's been going on in Tehran, is um, President Barack Obama. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't until what 48 hours ago that the president came out with a quite a tough statement on the way the Iranian government's handling the demonstrations against the people protesting that the presidential election was fixed, etc., etc. Um, and then he came out with this hot criticism, um, Rosie. I'm just wondering whether, in fact, he was right to hold off. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he didn't want to get into the business of megaphone diplomacy. I mean, that was something his predecessor was very bad at. Of course he was right to hold off. And actually, I don't think he's uh, gone in with all guns blazing as it is. Uh, he's still relatively restrained because... He doesn't have a plan B if diplomacy doesn't work with Iran on the nuclear issue. And he also knows that insofar as he probably hoped that somebody other than Ahmadinejad would win this time round, it won't help his opponents to have American backing. Right. No, and there was a very interesting piece inspired, I'm sure, by heavy American briefing in the New York Times today, saying that, in fact, when you come to think of it, this is for the Arab states who are our allies, West allies, this is a bit of a, a present, because if this guy does, in fact, still hold on to the presidency, he's going to be weakened. He's going to have to look to his domestic economy. He's not going to be fiddling around with his bullers and Hamases and our populations like he was. And so we'll shut up. In fact, in Bahrain, uh, which has a Shiite majority, the one Arab state in the Gulf that does, apart from, uh, well, Iran isn't Arab, when uh, a paper was critical of the um, of the goings on mm. of the pro uh, not of the protesters supported the protesters the Bahraini government closed it down just a quick uh, quick quick thought uh, Alexander there was I was reading a piece in um, Italy a right wing the Republican Heritage Foundation um, site said the world needs a president who aggressively projects American power on the world stage do you think that Barack Obama has been Bruised? Well, I think that his uh, advisors didn't understand one crucial thing about mm. this, conf uh, this situation in Iran. It has nothing to do with democracy. This is an infight in the regime itself. Musavi is exactly the same as Ahmadinejad. They are fighting for influence, for the uh, uh, influence in the revolutionary guard, for the oil, for everything, for power. The people are, as usually, tricked. They think mm. they're fighting for democracy. No, these are two groups fighting between each other. Exactly the same thing happened in Russia in 1991. There's Gorbachev, one faction of the Communist Party, Yeltsin another. They're fighting each other. Provincial communist apparatchik fighting central communist apparatchik. Provincial wins, the KGB with them. That's the only reason. The revolutionary guard, if it moves to one side, that's the end of the other one. Right. That's the difference. Uh, it's just gone half past the hour. Um, stay with us. Uh, in 29 minutes, we'll be joining British number one Andy uh, Murray's second round match from Wimbledon 
at 5pm straight after this programme. Now, I want to find out more what people have been watching, what people have been hearing in, in Iran, um, because one of the many TV and media monitors over the past couple of weeks is Hashir Tamorian, the Middle East commentator at the Limehouse Group of Analysts. Um, Hashir, there's a heck of a lot of, for example, the BBC Persian TV channel since it was launched, uh, when was it, in January of this year. I have a lot of concentration on that, trying to get their stuff through, but being jammed. Yes, that's right. But remember that this is a country uh, in which, since the eve of the uh, results, that's two weeks ago, there has not been a single interview with the losing candidates. The, the, the whole, almost the whole of the communications have been shot down. People cannot send texts to each other. Internet service uh, providers have been shot down. The telephone, uh, telephones are being controlled. If you mention the leadership or anything political, your telephone is cut. So there's a huge thirst for news. And then because the government is still denies all news, relevant news, uh, to the population, they have to do their best to go, for example, through anti-filter technologies, which even I don't understand, to get to the BBC Persian service in London or the Voice of America or even the Voice of Israel on the radio. There's this huge thirst and because they get through, this angers the government. Um, the, the British government is not shutting down the BBC on behalf of Iran. And so, um, anyway, BBC, the Britain is the old scapegoat um, uh, whipping boy, uh, traditionally for Iran. All trouble is due to the British. Yeah, but listen, I mean, the, the, the Persian... The, I mean, the Iranians got a point, haven't they? That the Persian BBC Persian TV channel yes. is funded at a cost of... 14, 15 million pounds a year by the British Foreign Office. Yes. Again, I can therefore see why Iranians may think it's part of United Kingdom propaganda, especially as they've now bought into two new satellites so that they can get into Iran. Well, it is the BBC. It is editorial controlled by the BBC. And I'll tell you what... uh, what You don't think the Foreign Office actually sort of said, get into those satellites, get into there... I think the BBC, uh, this problem has been faced by the BBC since Soviet days, for example. The Soviet Union was jamming the Russian service of of world service uh, on the radio. And therefore, the BBC could not make it easy for foreign uh, governments to jam its signal. So, but I'll tell you what it is. For example, there is latest news of the riots, of the political developments, as the best journalists can get it. There is studio analysis by experts, including former ministers of the government, insiders, Islamists themselves. There is phone-ins by demonstrators, critics, and supporters of the regime. What's wrong with that? Mm. You, 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 I mean, you work for the Persian service, didn't you? I think for it was years. called then of, of, for the, of the BBC. Is there never a chance that subversive views would be broadcast? Well, subversive views, uh, I'll tell you what subversive views are. For example, at the moment, the demonstrators themselves uh, film uh, the riots, the brutality of the police, the killings on their mobiles, and they send these images abroad. And you, we, we see a young woman with, with blood pouring out of her uh, eyes. And that's all subversive. That's revolutionary image, yes. But it's also, it's also true that in the world of diplomacy... And, I mean, Rosie was saying earlier the need that when this phase is over, uh, people like uh, President uh, uh, Barack Obama have still got to go back to the main issues such as the nuclear program in 
yes. in, in Iran. Yes, that's right. Isn't it so important that at this stage uh, that the charges that the Foreign Office is influencing the BBC or even ordering the BBC uh, about broadcasting what the Iranians would see as subversive? Forget what you and I might well, see as subversive. Uh, isn't I, that important? Let me say to you something. During the Iranian Revolution, I was myself a member of the Persian service and the BBC, uh, the, the Foreign Office definitely would have liked to tone down our reporting because the Shah of Iran was a very important ally and client and yet it didn't succeed. Um, we, we resisted all sorts of in interference. Whether our program organizer, who was a lovely man called John Dunn, an, an Englishman, he was doing his best to control us or not. We, we had our own journalistic ethics. We had to reflect what, is, what was going on. So at the moment, for example, when at night the streets of Te Tehran become a hum under darkness, every rooftop is shouting down with the regime. What is a broadcasting organization to do but to broadcast that? Right. Hajir Tamorian, thank you very much indeed. Um, Rosemary Hollis, you um studying this every single day of your life. Um, does any of that ring true? That thing about the... Um, it is the duty of the BBC, it's the duty of the B British uh, I'm Foreign fascinated Office. by this one because I think it is an example of the 21st century phenomenon that we're dealing with because uh, we were told in the two weeks before the election on June the 12th. We were told that uh, the televised debate where the candidates had a row with each other and got quite nasty with each other and that seemed to increase interest in the in the poll, in the prospects of a real choice at the election. We were told by the BBC reporters that these debates are not going to change anybody's mind. Mm. The supporters are there for the two main candidates, Musavi and Ahmadinejad. It's not any different today. The protests are not winning any converts inside Iran, and the people who feel that their election was stolen will carry on believing that, whatever the regime says, and vice versa. Right. I tell you something else that, that, that I struggle with. Um, I reckon the one person I want to discuss the whole thing with, uh, Christopher Walker, you know him, um, I would have to have some Hebrew because it would be the Prime Minister of, of, of Israel, Mr Netanyahu. That is the guy that's really... Well, he's in Paris, as you know, the yes. man he's just arrived in Europe. I think probably the... I don't speak very good Hebrew, but not good enough to do it, nor do you. Or but classical the, Hebrew. But I think the phrase would be something along the lines, I told you so. I mean, he's been going on about this for some time, the dangers of Iran, the real problem in the Middle East. Of the Which is what he problem. told President Obama when he went there. Sort yeah, Iran, then we can sort Now, Palestine. what is everybody talking about? If he, you know, if everybody tries to raise the Palestinian issue today, you know, they're wiped aside, as you say, rather like the uh, goings-on in Afghanistan are wiped aside. Everybody's focused on Iran. It's partly to do with this thing that it's 21st century media, that everybody's seeing a revolution of a type taking place in front of their eyes. But also, uh, Netanyahu is really, I mean, he's a very clever speaker. And I think he's, he, you know, he didn't know this was going to happen, but it's played right in a cricketing term, you know, it's played right into his bat. And he's clever enough now to take it on. Hmm. Yeah, he won't be. He'll be fiddling with some 
awful linguistics about uh, settlements and whether there can be a little natural expansion and a little list of this or that. But, I mean, it's Iran, Iran, Iran. And what's going to happen at the end? None of us know who's going to win this struggle. It, it, it changes from day to day. Look, how, makes look what happened yesterday when they had the um, the victorious regime had a cocktail party. Well, they don't drink, but uh, soft drinks party, and only half the members of parliament went. Yes, rather even less than half. I think. No, but I think it, well, no expenses probably. I, I think it is an ongoing power struggle there. Definitely, exactly. that's 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 the main point. And the Americans mm. pretending that the influence, you know, the CIA is praying, saying, "Please, please, please." We've been telling our bosses we are funding the opposition, and so on. It's playing into our hands. They haven't done anything because that now we we find out that this is a power struggle between groups within the regime. That's right. that's the big. Difference. There's another aspect of the British involvement that I think is worth touching on too. The MKO. Oh, the MK is the terrorist organization here. <laughs> so except, except that Britain took the MKO, the Mojahedini Kalk organization, off the terrorist list. Yeah. Or the, the EU did, didn't it? Um, and Britain yeah. went along. Yeah. Now, in January. The MKO have their supporters in the British Parliament, including in the House of Lords, and that was something that the Foreign Office, I believe, was deeply upset about because they knew that then the Iranians would be able to say, you see, the British are trying to be subversive through even this ridiculous organisation. Right. I, got well, a, I mean, we could well, go so on. There's one very quick point to say that the Iranians do have a sense of humour. They changed officially the address of the British Embassy uh, to Bobby Sands Avenue. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. some time ago. That wasn't just now, was it? No, but it's still no. spelled S-A-N-D-Z. 81? I think the funniest thing was when the Americans said we're cancelling the invitations of Iranian diplomats to the July 4th celebrations, and I've laughed at it because nobody was going anyway. It's rather like the G8 Summit, is it tomorrow in Trieste? The wives are not going. Yes. In, in Trieste. Yes. Uh, they've said, oh, we don't want the Iranians to go. The Iranians weren't going to turn up anyway. <laughs> yeah. I want to change tack. Could talk about this the rest of the programme, actually. We ought to do another programme on it. Yes, is Berlusconi making them all go through Perder in Trieste, by the way? I understood that he'd put them in a former barracks and they were all going to be very um, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, instead As of the former Playboy Club. Hey, listen, <laughs> I tell you, this whole thing is far more interesting than most things we do. Um, especially, the, we'll do a programme on Berlusconi. Maybe oh, remarks, the two hour, please, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, you haven't got the energy. Now, listen, um, I want a complete, everyone... no, I'm going to be quite serious, is a complete change of tack because on Saturday it's Armed Forces Day in the United Kingdom. Armed Forces Day on a Saturday. A bit odd, a Saturday. You normally have Armed Forces Day or, or special days on a, on a particular date, the force, anywhere. Anyway, marching, flag-waving, and a bit of tin-rattling as well. No major royal. Very annoying. To Duke the of Gloucester. 19th in no, succession. No, it's Duke of Gloucester, Prince, Prince Richard of Gloucester. 19th in succession to the throne. And he's, and he's going to be... Very angry. The, and he's going to be at Chatham. Yes. Uh, Chatham, which is a naval base that was closed down, I think, 30 years Why? ago. Why? And only told him. I mean, when we, had, uh, when we had them not turning up in Dunkirk till the last minute, it was yeah. blamed on Brown and on Sarkozy. But yeah. this can't be surely blamed on the government. No. Right? And Gloucester will be hurt about this because I mean, he cares yes. quite a lot. Well, he's a good man. Especially but I mean, with the, uh, about the RAF. And people need to care about the RF. At the moment, uh, let's, let's pause um, for the moment because I'm just wondering how well British forces are looked after in the outside world, the outside world of the forces, the outside world of social, financial and psychological pressures in the civilian community. Let's begin 
with this report by Jamie Gordon from this week's SAFA Forces Help in Services Volunteers Conference. It was held at the HAC uh, in, in headquarters in central London. Over 150 people gathered to listen to keynote speeches from Dame Elizabeth Hoodless, from Community Service Volunteers, and Dr Tony Baker, a consultant in child and family psychiatry. Another aim of the conference was to present awards. The SAFA Committee of the Year gong was presented to a group in Blamford. It's the training depot for the Royal Signals, and Gillian Flint is a committee member. We just have the most fantastic team of on the committee and the volunteers. Um, they are willing to get involved in all sorts of things and we have fundraising things we can be out one day sort of selling cakes and things to people so they're doing that one day the next day one of them could be up modeling on the catwalk francis shine and jilly wiggins are mothers of servicemen injured on ops and they spoke movingly reducing many to tears about the impact it's had on their families and particularly the younger siblings and how SAFA volunteers had helped them get through the bad times ada harwood's husband was an RAF flight sergeant serving in cyprus when he suffered a brain injury and was transferred back to headley court thankfully her husband looks as though he'll resume his RAF career and SAFA was crucial in supporting the whole family through their ordeal. I have now become a member of the family of the injured servicemen support group and we support each other and SAFA helps us. Um, they put us in touch with uh, the professionals have got expertise in various areas that we might need to access. The children of service personnel were an important part of the conference agenda and particular attention was paid towards helping them through separation, frequent postings and coping with the unique nature of service life. And although many of those issues are dealt with whilst living overseas, children attending a mainly civilian school in the UK were at risk of being missed by the system. The SAFA Volunteer of the Year is Lisa Richardson from RAF Watersham and much of her work revolves around children. We had a woman that put back out four young children I will help look after them I had um, a husband that was deployed and the mother was taken into hospital and I took on her three children along with my own children and looked after them for a couple of days so there's somebody there to help um, so it is nice when everyone pulls together and you know that there's support there you don't have to rely on parents driving down for 11 hours to help you towards the end of the conference the director of fundraising told the delegates that times were tight and although SAFA had been successful in raising money competition among service charities was very real and that for SAFA forces help to continue to provide the service to the British forces they had to keep rattling the collection tins. Jamie Gordon reporting there. Um, Christopher the political reaction to any moment of difficulty over for example policies on Iraq or Afghanistan is to get up in the house isn't it and you get the minister or the prime minister or anybody and say I first want to pay tribute to wonderful and often, often dangerous work carried out by our armed forces and at that point nobody can really hack into the government policy because it appears that they're attacking the armed forces right? Yes. When but they comes couldn't to, not do it. That's either. right. <laughs> but when it comes to caring for them mm. in difficult circumstances after they've left those battle zones and after they left the armed forces, it's not a great track record, is it? No, and I think what really shocked uh, people uh, earlier this year was uh, the, the incidents uh, down at the swimming pool in Surrey where you suddenly had these sort of middle-class mothers saying, excuse me, could you keep those chaps with only one leg out of the pool? It's upsetting little Cynthia. And people really got annoyed with that. And I think there has been an improvement also the way that but some the of these marches... the government has nothing to do with this. No, there has been some improvement at Headley. 
uh, yeah. there has been some. Which is a lot of it's charitable. I agree. I mean, I don't think it's nearly good enough. And those two, those three films I were, was talking about on the telly uh, on Basra gave an impression, particularly bad. I think we ought I, to I drive. I have to home. disagree with Chris. No, no, but we must drive home. No. It's really bad for the territorials uh, let let, because they minute. don't have. Uh, the sort of regimental, regimental gathering. <laughs> they go back to work in the post office or on the local shoe shop and they find people perhaps don't even care. But that's they not do. the government. Chris, you're missing the point. Tony Blair never visited the wounded in Iraq ever. That's for me tells that's everything. That's not true. When? No, no, that's not true. When did in he the, visit them? Right. In the hospitals, never. Okay. That's that's what Manning makes the government not care. If the mothers say something... Well, in America, they the couldn't government. even show the, the coffins the coming back with the flag on. Okay, yeah. listen, I want, to talk, I, I, I want to talk to somebody who has been, during the past 15 years, helping people work through some of their difficulties. Um, I mean, the MOD's own figures released this week showed in the first six months of 2008, which is the only the latest figures we've got. Um, more than 1,600 service men and women were diagnosed with a mental disorder. That's 8.3 per thousand. It's quite a lot. It's less than 1% maybe of those coming forward, but it's the ones that don't come forward. It's just as important. The person that's been trying to help for 15 years is John Hendon of the Hendon Consultancy. Um, John, working with battlefield trauma and stress, it is not easy there's no, there's no set pattern of how you do it, is there? Well, there's no set pattern, but the good news is we have a range of uh, very effective tools and techniques which are very easy to teach military welfare workers. And for a number of years, I've been training military welfare workers across all three armed services to deliver just that, this, these effective short-term treatments. Is there a sort of um, sort of trigger thing in in the average person that suffers? Is there a trigger such as uh, a bad dream of an explosion or uh, a difficulty of home life after the, after they've returned from an operation? Well, often that's the case, and in fact, the we address the four main areas. We've got a, a range of about seventy in all different uh, field tested tools and techniques, which work on four key areas. And that is, you mentioned triggers. Often there, there could be just an explosion in the street of a car backfiring, and that can be a trigger back to Helmand province in Afghanistan, for instance. Then there's full-blown flashbacks, which could result from triggers. Then thirdly, intrusive thoughts. And as we know, if, in, if intrusive thoughts that occur during the daytime aren't dealt with satisfactorily, then we get disturbed sleep. See, the other side of it, I, I, was, I was looking at some figures the other day and it said that, for example, in central London at any one time, there were maybe around about a 1,000 ex-service people mm. sleeping in shop doorways. Mm, I um, and I thought, well, that's bad enough. And then I read um, that people become involved in, for example, in armed robberies. It is that extreme. Yes, and... Uh, or. or Violent incidents in the home or in the local communities because the anger has been building up and we've got some fantastic techniques and this is really good news in order to help people discharge pent-up anger in a safe way. Uh, yes, I think something like the prison population, there's 8% of the prison population are ex-military personnel. And that is a terrible statistic. So really, we, we need to... 
work with people at an early stage and deal with the symptoms and get them back to fighting fitness ASAP. John, um, tell me, I mean, the work that uh, your Hendon Consultancy does over the past 15 years, Mm. I mean, how much help do you get, say, from MOD or government? Well, um, the MOD, uh, through various routes, are very good at um, uh, financing the training. They've got training budgets for military welfare workers and in fact we have trained every single army welfare worker in solution focused brief therapy techniques um, all across the world Um, so uh, we train them in the basic SFBT approach and then the um, two day uh, workshops on battlefield trauma and stress so they've got these extra specialized skills to teach service personnel who are suffering. John Hendon, thank you very much. We'll come back to this and come back to um, your consultancy later in the summer on this. Um, 90 years ago, uh, Combat Stress, the charity Combat Stress was set up. It's um, described as the leading charity specialising in the care of British veterans, uh, many of whom have been profoundly traumatised by experiences during their service career. On the line is... uh, I think patron of Combat Stresses, uh, st- Stress, uh, the BBC correspondent, Kate Eighty. Kate, why, why uh, 90 years on do we still need something like Combat Stress? Well, first of all, I mean, mental problems, mental illness has still got a difficult position in society. Uh, Never mind ex-service personnel. I mean, across society, there is still suspicion, there is still discrimination, and there is also a degree of, I think, um, a, a, a sense of fear of um, mental problems and you get that in families and that can exacerbate the whole thing particularly with ex-service personnel who um, have somebody in the family to to a great extent was seen as good strong person went out to these difficult places did a tough job and that's a double whammy when things start going wrong and someone who's been uh, very much known for their um their, their strength their sort of can do attitude ends up in trouble so you add that to society's um sense of worry about mental problems and you have twice the problem the other thing is that we i mean we've been talking about uh, afghanistan iraq etc um but Thinking about combat stress going back 90 years, we should be thinking of much earlier uh, conflicts. Well, I think one of the problems is that it takes so long to present itself because, and let's have, have no, sort of make no bones of it, a lot of men in particular are extremely wary of admitting to this sort of problem. I think it's particularly to do with being a a sort of macho guy sometimes or of sense losing your grip they don't want to show it not even to their family so they sit on it for a very long time and there has always been a problem with groups of men not just in the military who very much are known for um, having to face up to really tough situations and tough it out that having seen something terrible having had a very difficult time there is no real sense of well let's just sort of have a matter about it afterwards or i'm not talking about a therapy session i'm just saying even mentioning it there are a great number of people who just grit their teeth and bury things it's part of the male psychology i'm not saying that women doesn't happen to women too but it's a very 
blokish thing. So that means that for years and years, these things lie, not dormant, but just waiting rather to sort of come out at some point. And they may be triggered by all sorts of things. Kate thank you very much for joining us. Um, any other business? Uh, Alexander, Corfu. Yes. Do you, by the way, did you know that uh, Prince Philip was born in Corfu? No, I didn't. On a dining room table in a, in a, in a bungalow called Monrepo. <laughs> now, don't smirk. That is absolutely true. Um, I thought I'd mention it, but that's not the importance of the meeting in Corfu this week. Not the NATO-Russia meeting uh, this weekend. At least they're talking, aren't they? Well, yes, but are they hearing each other? That's the point. You see, the problem is that why in Corfu? Why didn't they go somewhere else where, as you know, it's not a holiday resort or something? Well, I think and, uh, it's the Greek side of it. I mean, or it's, it's, it's Deripaska is... providing his yacht again for everybody, and Mr. Mandelson is there too. No, I no, don't... no, 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 he's Lord, part of Lord, Lord, sorry, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. I don't really understand that sort of, you know, uh, attitude of both sides. First of all, Russia is deeply suspicious of NATO. NATO knows about this. NATO is pushing for expansion eastwards. Not a good idea. The Russians are suspicious. I don't understand that sort of game which is being played by the politicians. I was going to ask Alexander how he thinks the Russians will react to the news that the Georgians are the latest, Georgia, the latest country to send a contingent to Afghanistan. Well, they will not be happy about this, obviously. I mean, you know the answer yourself, basically. But I thought it was from you. (laughs) Will that upset the... Of course it will the upset them. And, and, and the point is hours, that the Russian, so, Russian yeah. people do not trust NATO because they will have been submitted to massive propaganda for many, many years. You cannot by whom? Just, by, by the communist state in Russia. You must, you must understand, the West is being treated with suspicion. If you are brainwashed you know, for many, many decades, you can't just suddenly say, oh, okay, they're nice people, let's, let's let them in. That's the point. You see, time has to pass and NATO has to be more flexible. And the general secretary has to understand that he has to be flexible of NATO, I mean, and those Mm. countries. And and then they are not. So this meeting is just a suntan thing. Okay, suntan? Suntan, yes. Well, it's Corfu. Come on. Uh, Yes. On the yacht. A bit of cricket. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um... The Americans, uh, Rosie, they've got a deal going with Kyrgyzstan to allow their military uh, people to use the air bases still. Now, this presumably helps support the NATO and Afghanistan um, uh, contingent. I thought they were getting kicked out of there. Well, uh, yes, but uh, there is a certain amount of bargaining going on, isn't there? So what are they getting And the price is obviously getting higher uh, for those who can give access to these kinds of places. And, uh, you know, the Khyber Pass and the Pakistan border and so on, if they lose that, and Iran is not showing up for the meeting, as we were mentioning earlier, where they should be discussing the future Mm. of Afghanistan. Mm. And we seem to have lost touch of the formula that was in vogue 15 years ago, at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, that you get everybody in the tent. You get all the neighbours, when there's a problem, you bring them all in, and they all have something to do, and you spread around the tasks. Uh, Latterly, I think it's all been about uh, self-defence, you know, protecting your own arse, or uh, strutting your stuff and putting on a good show. And uh, I I think... Sorry, what was that? The public all over Europe, including in the UK, have lost faith in their politicians, and the politicians um, don't know any other game to play. 
Murray's second round match from Wimbledon, which will start very, very shortly. In the meantime, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary's still in the hut. We'll be back. Okay? Why not?